Blog Talk Radio. show. Um, I believe we're going to talk a little bit about Mr. Joseph Biden. He's hitting uh, record-setting levels of parity. Um, they're trying to portray him as the next FDR now, which is hilarious, as you all know, for a variety of reasons. I'm going to lead with that story in just a second. Now, I'm not just like, that's an actual thing. That's an actual thing that the media has settled on and that his campaign has settled on. He spent the entire primary bashing the real new FDR, Bernie Sanders, and now he's pretending like he's going to be Bernie Sanders. They're so infuriating, these people, man. I swear to God. I'm getting more and more disillusioned by the day with these clowns. Um, We also have Stacey Abrams desperately wanting to be VP, and going on a goofy-ass media tour. But uh, Biden pulled a little fake-out maneuver where uh, he was with Stacey Abrams on cable news, and she clearly thought that she was going to be announced as VP, and she wasn't. So that was really funny, and we're going to talk about that. I'll show you guys the video of it. Um, Later on in the show, we have Rush Limbaugh going full speed ahead with COVID-19 conspiracy theorizing. Wait until you see the, the connection that he tries to make. It's no bueno, to to say the least. And later on, Justin Amash is back in the show today. He pulled a little 180-ing-tin, and I will be making fun of CNN as well. So, without further ado, let's get started. And we'll do that with uh, Biden's new media approach, which is pissing me off colossally. Okay. So the Biden campaign is continuing to hit record-setting levels of parity. Let me show you the new thing that they're up to. 
So this is from Alex Burns of the New York Times, and he says the following. My story today. Dems had just settled on a 2020 message about center-left policies and a return to normalcy when COVID made it obsolete. Now, Biden is promising FDR-scale change, and Dems from Warner to Warren say the, move, the moment demands deep economic reform. And then you see a quote in here. It's, uh, there is a recognition that this event is more transformative than 2008, more transformative than 9-11 more transformative than the fall of the Berlin Wall, said Senator Mark Warner of Virginia, a centrist Democrat. Now, as a general rule, I want whenever you guys hear the word centrist to describe a Democrat in official channels, just replace it immediately with corporatist, because these are not really ideological centrists or moderates. They're just people who want to do the bidding of their donors, and so they do the bidding of their donors and they cloak those actions um, with an ideological claim. There's an ideological shield there. Uh, who, me? I mean, listen, yeah, sure, I just voted to deregulate Wall Street, but it's okay because the reason I did that is not corrupt. The reason I did that is because of my ideology. I'm a centrist. No, you're a corporatist, and you really believe in nothing, and you go along to get along, and you fit right in in Washington, D.C., because everybody takes the path of least resistance, which is doing the bidding of their donors. So that's who Mark Warner is. But, so Joe Biden and his staff and the media, and just so everybody understands, the media is going all in on this front. All in. I've seen multiple headlines, multiple articles talking about how he's the new FDR, bunch of tweets on it, and they're, they're really going with this. I, I feel like I don't even need to do the rest of the segment because everything I'm going to say is so damn obvious. Okay, Biden did everything he could in his power to stop the actual new FDR, Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders was running on a continuation of FDR's legacy. Bernie Sanders is the person who more closely embodies that ideological path of social democracy. That's not Joe Biden. Joe Biden is on the record as being a neoliberal corporatist when you look at his record over the years. I mean, this stuff... It's so obvious, it pains me to say it, but not only that, Biden went out of his way to smear Bernie for, for believing in that ideology. Remember, they start towards the end of the campaign when they were getting really desperate. What did they do? They threw the kitchen sink at Bernie, and they were like, oh, look at this goddamn Fidel Castro lover. He loves Fidel Castro. Loves Fidel Castro. Unacceptable. Not okay. Dictator lover. For the same policies that Biden is now going to pretend to believe in for the rest of the campaign. For those same policies, Medicare for all, free college, and then they took stuff out of context from like the 1980s. And we're like, see, he gave incredibly nuanced, tepid, kind comments about Fidel Castro. Therefore, he agrees with everything he ever did. Therefore, he's a communist dictator, communist dictator Bernie. Now, all of a sudden in the general election, oh my God, look, Society is collapsing around us. We're entering an economic depression. We have a pandemic. <laughs> who, me, bro? Johnson? I mean, the person who I most embody more than anybody's like FDR, if you know what I'm saying. That's what, really? Really, she agree with FDR? Okay. Well, you do know there is something that's on the record that FDR wanted to pursue, but he didn't live long enough to pursue it. You do know 
that there's a second bill of rights that he was pushing, right? You do understand that, right? Because you're saying you want to embody FDR's, you know, legacy and his ideology, and you want to be the new FDR. Okay, he left the roadmap. So I suspect that Joe Biden is now in favor of every single portion of that second bill of rights, the economic bill of rights, as it's called. Can I mark you down for that, Joe? This is a serious question to Joe Biden and all of his staffers. Somebody send this segment to them and somebody send it to them ASAP. Because if he's being serious about this, okay, well, great, we have the roadmap. Are you going to do the second bill of rights? Are you going to do the economic bill of rights? You do know what's in that, right? Ideas that are so far to the left of Joe Biden that, again, Joe Biden would scoff at it and call it communist. So I'm just sick of it. You know what it is? There's such rank opportunists. Joe Biden is such a rank opportunist. His staff, they're such rank opportunists that they don't care that they just totally contradicted their entire message on the campaign trail. And they also don't care that they don't mean it when they say it. Obviously, he's not going to be like the next FDR. Now, um, I want to show you this because, I mean, it's just it perfectly, this is just too perfect. I swear to God, this is too perfect. I came across both of these articles on the exact same day. So the one you just saw about the New York Times saying, well, Biden and his team, now he says, I'm going to do FDR. I'm going to be the new FDR. I'm going to do the FDR style change. I'm going to go, I'm going to go in that direction. The same day I saw that article, I also saw this article. This is from the Washington Post. Donors can now give $620,600 to Biden and the DNC, expanding Democratic big money fundraising. In other words, he's doing what Hillary did. And just so everybody knows, the name of this is the Biden Victory Fund. And what this is, is on paper, it's a fundraising agreement with Biden and I believe 26 of the state Democratic parties. So a big donor can give hundreds of thousands of dollars to Joe, and he's nominally supposed to share it with a bunch of the state parties. Now, Hillary had the same kind of an agreement. She ended up not really sharing the money. So she would, you know, raise money from big donors, and she would just use it all for her campaign. When on paper, it's supposed to be like, oh, I'll share it with the state Democratic parties. This is the same kind of an agreement that Joe Biden just signed. At the same time, he's like, me, bro, I'm the new FDR. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be like FDR. FDR represented the people when it comes to his economic policies. That's what he did. Joe, you can't represent the people if you're bought and owned by billionaires and by corporate interests. And that's exactly what this is. So, I, again, I swear it was the exact same day that I came across both of these articles. Perhaps they weren't released on the same day. They were almost certainly released on this, during the same week. But I came across these almost back-to-back. It was like, oh, I'm going to be like FDR. Anyway, now I'm going to raise $620,600 a pop from wealthy donors. They're so brazen. I almost, I'm almost jealous of the people who don't follow this stuff closely. And so they just might have this default assumption, like, I don't know, obviously Trump's a terrible person, so maybe Biden's good. Like, I'm jealous of the naive people, the ignorant people who don't follow this. Because once you start following this, it's maddening. It really is. After you follow politics long enough, there was a great 
quote that, and I don't remember the guy who said it, and I don't remember exactly how he worded it, but it was one of my favorite tweets of all time. And the dude basically said that before you enter politics, you have this mindset of like, what's the point? They're all corrupt. None of them are working for us anyway. Like that's the outsider, don't even care about politics, apolitical, never cared about politics. That's that person's mindset, generally speaking. And then you get involved in politics. And then after you're involved in politics long enough, you come right back to that original position. They're not working for us anyway. They're corrupt. What's the point? And that's just so, that perfectly describes exactly what I'm feeling and I know many of you are feeling. They're just so shameless. They're just so shameless and they're such liars. And, you know, don't, I don't want anybody to ever get it twisted. Me beating up on Joe Biden, I do it because of what he does. It's not me, it's him. I'm just describing what he's doing and it's unacceptable. But this is in no way, shape, or form to excuse Trump because Trump's terrible also. He's horrendous. Okay, one of the reasons I couldn't vote for Obama again in 2012 was because his drone strikes were killing civilians. 90% civilians. Well, guess what? Donald Trump increased those drone strikes 432%. And so he's massacring civilians also. He ripped up the Iran deal. He's, you know... um, Escalating tensions with Cuba as well. I, I could go on and on. It, the tax bill, the deregulation, I can go on and on with all the problems with Trump. He didn't end the wars. He said he was going to end the wars. He didn't end the wars. So, like, me beating up Biden is not to excuse Trump because I hate Trump also. But that's the point is that it's, they're all so far from that which is even minimally acceptable. And it drives me crazy. It drives me crazy. Everybody knows you're not going to do FDR scale change. Everybody knows you're not going to do that. You know, if you really wanted to do it, okay, well, let's see a campaign for you pushing for the second Bill of Rights. That's what FDR would have done if he was still around. And you're not going to do that. You're just using it as a branding exercise. The same stuff you just called communist, the same stuff you just pretended like Bernie was sympathetic to dictators. You're now like, oh, I'm just like Bernie. And by the way, I don't want to let Bernie off the hook here either because you know what? The fact that a pandemic hit and an economic depression hit, Bernie was still in the race when that was happening. The fact that you couldn't make crystal clear that, well, oh, obviously now I'm the only option that makes sense, people. Hello? Everything I've been talking about on the campaign trail has now been proven correct. 43 million people are about to lose their health care on top of the 27 million people, 28 million people who already didn't have it. And I'm the only candidate calling for Medicare for all for everybody to get health care. I mean, obviously, even people who didn't like me before, now you like me, now you want me to be president, right? Because I'm the only person that has the vision and the mindset and the ideology and the philosophy to deal with what's happening to us right now. But he didn't do that. Bernie, say you know, I would like to maybe be president, but if that means that I have to hit Joe Biden, I will not hit Joe Biden, and I'll call him my friend every 14 seconds, and then maybe I'll just... I'll just go into the background slowly and then push Joe Biden relentlessly, even though he's terrible and he's anathema to everything I believe in. Ah! God damn it, man. 620000 $600. I mean, listen, that's all he's got. That's the only move Biden's got. It's the only move he's got. That's it. It's the only movie he's got. Why? He can't raise small dollar uh, donor money. 
all of his voters are like, you know, professional class, 65-year-old suburbanites. They're not donating 20 bucks a pop to Joe Biden. They go vote for him even though they haven't heard him talk in two and a half years. Oh, everything is so broken. God, I hate it. I hate it all so much. This is what we have. We got Biden or Trump. That's it. That's what we're at right now. (laughs) How did this happen? In 2016, I was like, oh, wow, at least this is a -a once-in-a-lifetime event. We're never going to get another election that has two options this terrible. Ha-ha! Wrong, Kyle. Wrong. Okay, next. Next, 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 next. How's that for a depressing way to start the show? All right, now it's, uh, I got more on Joe Biden, yet again, rejecting Medicare for all. Joe Biden was asked about Medicare for all in an interview with MSNBC. And even though we're in the middle of a pandemic that's ripping through the country and health care is one of the top issues the American people are concerned with, he still rejected it. He still rejected it. Let's watch. counselor in Vancouver, Washington. So I work with a lot of families that really struggle. And I just am wondering, it uh, seems appalling that someone who would lose their job in the middle of a pandemic would also lose their health care. And doesn't this seem to make Medicare for all or single-payer health care seem more important to you? Vice President Biden, uh, what's your what's your view of Medicare for All now? And I know you've had a chance to talk to Senator Sanders about it. Well, I have. Uh, number one, uh, the quickest way to get that health care is to do two things. The middle of this pandemic to make sure that the federal government says no one will have to pay for any cost related to the COVID testing and or follow-up if anything is wrong and you have to be hospitalized. Secondly, there are 26 million people who, in fact, have lost their jobs at their company after they paid into a health insurance policy they like. There's There's a thing called COBRA. That means that the portion that the company that can no longer pay in their share of that 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 health care policy that will be paid fully by the federal government while this pandemic lasts thirdly the best way to move forward and get it done immediately is to withdraw the lawsuit that the president has to do away with obamacare and add the public option i'm supporting that i have for as part of my plan making sure that everyone is going to be able to have access to health care at an affordable cost across the board. And those who can't afford it because they're unemployed or don't have a job, they would automatically be enrolled in the public option, which is a Medicare-like option. They would be automatically covered with no cost. It's the quickest, fastest way to get it done. No, the quickest, fastest way to get it done is to totally eliminate the mafia middleman, the parasitic middleman, the unnecessary middleman, and have a single-payer system. That's the quickest way to get it done. That's the quickest way to get it done. But you don't want to do that. Why don't you want to do that? Well, you don't want to do that because you take money from the health insurance companies, and you take money from Big Pharma, and you're representing their interests, and you want them to be unnecessary bloodsuckers screwing over the people. 
Now, let's go through some of what he says here. At the end, he talks about a public option. Well, I mean, it's a Medicare for all. I mean, I got, I'm pretty in favor of like a public option. It's a Medicare-like option or something. Well, hold on now, Joe. Your own plan on your own website says the goal is 97% coverage. So you're still going to leave millions of people without coverage. Which is it? Are you in favor of a public option, which I guess nominally is supposed to cover everybody? Or are you in favor of covering 97% of the country like your own website says, which leaves millions of people uninsured? See, he'll go back and forth based on whatever's convenient and where the pressure's coming from. So, you know, sometimes he's in favor of expanding Obamacare, and other times he's in favor of a uh, public option. But both of those things will fall massively short in the middle of a damn pandemic, which gets us to his other idea, which is um, let's, let's fund COBRA to make sure that, you know, people are covered. And then, he, funny enough, he says something about, like, you know, funded by the federal government. So wait, hold on. I thought your concern with Medicare for All was like, oh, I don't want the federal government paying it. I don't want the tax money paying it. I thought that was your concern with Medicare for All, but now you're saying you're fine with funding COBRA and having the federal government foot the, page, uh, the, uh, the bill. So, but there's a difference. And so now what's the difference? When it comes to COBRA, it's basically a giant subsidy, a giant giveaway to the health insurance industry. So really stop and think about that. Joe Biden is not okay with eliminating the unnecessary, rapacious, for-profit, parasitic, mafia middleman. He's not okay with eliminating them. What he is okay with is taking more of your tax money, more of it, and handing it over as a subsidy to the health insurance companies under COBRA. So he's not, he's not in principle against tax money paying for health care. He just wants the men in the middle with suits and ties to get their cut because he's bought and owned by those men. That says everything right there. Listen, because all the time, what did he do during the campaign? He whined about the cost. Bernie, tell them how many trillions of dollars your, you know, your Medicare for All bill will cost. And Bernie always responded in the correct way, which is to say, Medicare for All saves money. It saves $5 trillion over a 10-year period, according to every study, because we're eliminating the mafia middleman. We're getting rid, we're cutting the fat, and we're going directly to your doctor. So there's nobody in between you and your doctor under a Medicare for All system. We save money that way. But he would always, you know, fearmonger about the cost. Well, now Biden is saying, I want a more expensive option than Medicare for All. Let's do these unnecessary giveaways to the health insurance companies under COBRA. It's unbelievable how corrupt he is and how terrible he is at hiding it. And if you do a logical breakdown of what he's saying, it'll drive you crazy. Um, then he says, I love this one. Well, you know, I, under my uh, proposal, you don't have to pay for COVID testing. What about treatment? What about treatment? You didn't say treatment. You didn't say, oh, you don't have to pay for COVID treatment. You said you don't have to pay for COVID testing. So the test would be free, but then if you find out you have it and you're hospitalized, well, then you're on your own and you got to pay for it. I mean, look at what we're dealing with here, man. This is pathetic. This is what we ask of our leaders. At the same time, he's going around pretending like, I'm going to be the next FDR. <laughs> FDR is rolling over in his grave here and that, son, let me tell you. Um, and then the final point is, look at, look at how unprepared he is for the moment. 
because we're the only developed country that doesn't have one version or another of a universal healthcare system. The connecting tissue between all the developed countries is that healthcare is publicly funded. You get sick, you get help, that's the end of it. You know, no bill. You're good. It comes out of your tax dollars. He's so unprepared that even in a situation where 27 or 28 million people already don't have health insurance, and now over 30 million people lost their jobs, probably closer to 40 million now, all those people lost their jobs. There's a study that just came out that found that an extra 43 million people might lose their health insurance because their health insurance was connected to their employment. So do the math on that. 43 plus 28, that's about 71, something like that. Don't quote me on that. I suck at math. But that's roughly where we are. So we're looking at a situation where 71 million people are not going to have health coverage. And all he has to respond is a Band-Aid over a gaping, gangrenous wound. That's all he's got. By the way, I would not be surprised even a little bit if Trump attempts to pivot to Biden's left on health care. The corporate Democrats are so lost, and they have no core at all, that they always try to play got you with the Republicans, where, like, they pivot to the right of the Republicans. Like, the other day, you know, they, a failed coup attempt, and then you have these Democrats coming out saying, well, obviously this was mismanaged, and we would have handled it better. So... Understand that. It's not, hey, the, doing a coup is bad. I'm against coups. No, it's, well, we all agree coups are good, but they mismanaged it. We wouldn't have mismanaged it. Our coup would have worked. This is the Democrats. This is the Democrats. So Biden is trying to do the mealy mouth, middle of the road, let's COBRA health insurance and maybe pay for testing but not treatment, and let's do subsidies to the health insurance industry. And he's going to get so lost in technocratic middle managing in neoliberal corporatism that Trump, I don't, I, Trump could easily come out and say, yeah, I want to cover all the treatment. I want to cover all the treatment. Now, will Trump actually do it? Of course not. Of course not. Never get it twisted. The Republican messaging, the Republican rhetoric never matches up when they play the populist game. They never actually do those things. It's just like, you know, it's just branding. It's just marketing. So I wouldn't doubt Trump going out pivoting to the left of Biden on either health care or, or a bunch of issues. And he's making it so easy. At a time when about 70 million Americans are going to lose their health coverage or have no health coverage at all, he's out there talking about funding COBRA, which is a health insurance, which is a subsidy to the health insurance industry, which is the exact kind of corrupt nonsense that we all hate. It's, it's so pathetic. He's just not ready for this. He's not prepared for this moment. Totally disconnected from reality. He's releasing cutesy videos with, with, Keegan Michael Key or whatever his name is, and where they're playing cards and joking around about quarantine <laughs> as the damn economy implodes. As we have minimum 3 million people lose their jobs every single week. I mean, we got this giant crisis on our hands. Society's coming apart, and he's joking around. He's acting like he's running for president at a time and place when everything's hunky-dory. I, oh, man. Abysmal. Abysmal. Good luck trying to defend this, people. <laughs> it's, it's indefensible. All right, now let's laugh. Now let's laugh. Let's laugh, bitch. 
Okay. Stacey Abrams, congrats, Stacey. You made it into the show. You made it. So this next video is both very sad and unintentionally hilarious. Um, Biden invited Stacey Abrams to come on MSNBC with him. And um, this led to both MSNBC and Stacey Abrams to think that she's going to be VP. They weren't told. Biden didn't tell Stacey Abrams why she's invited on MSNBC with him. Biden didn't tell MSNBC why Stacey is invited on MSNBC with him. Obviously, he's continuing to uh, torture people by, you know, having them try out for the VP role. Okay. Um, So you can tell here, you can tell without a doubt that MSNBC and Stacey Abrams both thought Biden was going to make an announcement that Stacey Abrams is VP. (laughs) That's clearly not what happens. And the rest is hilarious. Wrong one. Here we go. I want to begin this with a question to Joe Biden, because uh, Stacey Abrams is here because Joe Biden invited Stacey Abrams to be here. Uh, And so, uh, Mr. Vice President, uh, do you have an announcement to make? Uh, Is this an audition? Is there – what is the reason that that you decided it's time for me to get on TV with Stacey Abrams? Well, because Stacey Abrams has done more to deal with – of a fair vote and making sure there is a fair vote than anybody. And she, she has a great, great capacity to explain things and to lay out exactly why it's going to be so critically important in this election. This president's already said when they put in the stimulus package that Congress first passed money to provide for mail-in ballots, he already said, I'm not for that. If we do that, well, no, no Republican will ever win or something to that effect. He's made it clear this is a guy who said he wants to defund the post office from being able to deliver ballots. I mean, so Stacey knows what she's doing, and, uh, and she's an incredibly capable person. Okay, wait for it. That was amazing. <laughs> you saw the life come out of her face, and she's like, "Oh, I bet." I, I thought you were going to tell me I'm the vice president. Okay, this hurts. This hurts, and I'm on live TV. I'm going to try to hide it. Hide the pain, Stacy. Hide the pain. Hide it. <laughs> Listen, to be fair to Stacy, Joe, what are you doing, bro? <laughs> What are you doing? You're inviting Stacey Abrams on. Yeah, I want to do a segment. I'll invite on Stacey Abrams, who I'm considering for VP. And no, the reason I'm inviting her on is not to announce that she's, uh, you know, going to be the vice president. I'm invi- I just like her and think she's good on a, a bunch of issues. Who does that? <laughs> Nobody does that. It's almost like he's messing with them. So funny enough, I saw maybe about a week ago, There was an article that talked about how Biden's staffers are actually really, really put off by Stacey Abrams right now. Why? Because she's doing this, like, really insufferable and narcissistic media tour. Like, the media is really, really going hard in the paint for her right now and really trying to portray her as amazing 
And so there's been like a bunch of profiles done on her, a bunch of articles written about her. In some of them, she's taking these pictures and she's in goofy poses like she's a superhero and stuff. And like the media is doing flat out propaganda pushing her. And apparently the Biden people have seen this and they're like, I don't necessarily know. Like we don't want, you can't be loving the spotlight OD up front like this. You're going to have to reel it in a little bit. You're going to have to be serious. And they were really put off by her media tour, by the fact that she loves the spotlight and she's sort of basking in the spotlight. So I don't know, maybe we just started a little bit of a conspiracy theory here that she was like, they were getting revenge on her. <laughs> they were like, let's torture her a little bit for what she did, for the fact that, you know, she's basking in all this, this positive attention. Okay, let's take her down a couple pegs. Let's invite her on with Biden, and then Biden will not say that she's VP. How do you like them apples? possible that that's what's going on because I can't think of any reason why Biden would invite her on and then not, you know, and then do this. It's like, you knew how she was going to react. You knew she was going to be torn apart by that. So I, maybe they wanted to take her down a couple pegs. I don't know. But I agree with Biden's team though, that her media campaign has been so absurd. Like they try to paint her like she's like an angel and they say no, nothing negative about her at all. And she's basking in the spotlight. Now, meanwhile, and there's this myth that has been created now on the left about Stacey Abrams, that she's somehow good. No, Stacey Abrams voted with Republicans to drastically slash Georgia's program to provide full in-state tuition to students. So they had a free college program, and she helped Republicans gut it. She helped reduce liability for banking executives engaging in fraud, engaging in lending fraud. Um, and she also voted with Republicans to cut early voting from 45 days to 21 days, and, and, sorry for the beepiness here, she also snuggled up to Bloomberg. I don't know how many of you guys remember that, but remember Michael Bloomberg, he was about to jump in the race, he's got like $80 quadrillion in the bank, and so he was going to spend whatever the hell it takes for him to win, and for a moment there, the media was like, oh my God, Bloomberg might win, this is get, like he's going to enter late, and he's going to save the day, and he's going to get elected, and Stacey Abrams cuddled up to Bloomberg during that period, and for whatever reason, that was under almost everybody's radar, but credit to Lee Fong of The Intercept, who documented all this stuff. She snuggled up to Bloomberg, and I think it's because she had taken money from Bloomberg previously. And this is who Stacey Abrams is. This is who Stacey Abrams is. The idea that she's some sort of strong lefty or whatever, nonsense. Nonsense. So, you know, there you have it. She was absolutely torn apart. She was torn apart by the fact that Biden did not say you're going to be the vice president. Um, now, just the final point I'll make in this is I still, I said this to you guys early on, and I'll say it again for you, okay? I think the VP will either be Gretchen Whitmer or Amy Klobuchar. Now, one of the reasons I say that is because Biden has said repeatedly now, and it started in one of the debates with Bernie, he said, I promise to put a black woman on the Supreme Court. Now, in corporate Democrat speak, what that means is, hey, guys, don't get mad at me when I don't pick a, a black woman for VP because I already said I'm going to put a black woman on the Supreme Court. So don't get mad like I didn't check the identity quota boxes. I'm going to do it, but a black woman will be on the Supreme Court, not the VP. So when he said that, when he said publicly, I'll pick a black woman for the Supreme Court, that was, that was the signal, that was the hint, I'm not picking a black woman for VP. 
And so he already said I'm going to pick a woman. So I think it's either going to be, um, it's either going to be Gretchen Whitmer or Amy Klobuchar. They're outsider, outsider chance on Kamala Harris, outsider chance on Elizabeth Warren. But I really think it's going to be Gretchen Whitmer or Amy Klobuchar. That's what I think. I could be wrong. Um, between Whitmer and Klobuchar, I'm actually 50-50. I don't know which of the two. But in the, case of, in the case of Klobuchar, I think it's possible Biden promised her the VP position to get her to drop out and endorse him on Bloody Monday right before Super Tuesday, which led to the Biden landslide victories. Remember, if it wasn't for Beto O'Rourke, but more importantly, Mayor Pete and Amy Klobuchar dropping out and endorsing Biden at that last minute, Bernie almost certainly would have won almost certainly would have won because Biden was, you know, way back in the field and they needed to kind of consolidate that centrist vote. And they did. They did at the last minute. But I think Klobuchar could have pulled the card saying, I'm not going to drop out. I'm going to stay in unless, unless what? Unless you pick me for VP. And there was a moment already on the campaign trail where, where Klobuchar slipped up and said, I'm very happy to join this ticket. And then she backpedaled and she was like, no, 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 I mean, and she said something else. But so I think it's either Klobuchar or Whitmer. The reason why it would be Whitmer is because she's from a swing state that Biden would really want to win. And the logic of the campaign would be, oh, she'll help us win. I think it's Michigan. She'll help us win Michigan, so pick her because we got to win Michigan. And also she's the son of an insurance executive or insurance vice president, health insurance vice president, so she's sufficiently corrupt. So it's, it's one or the other, I think. But, hey, we'll see. Time will tell. I could be wrong. I'm more than happy to be corrected, obviously, if I'm wrong. It's really no big deal. Um, but that's what I think. And um, poor Stacy, Poor Stacy just got her heart ripped out <laughs> on national TV. All right, next. There's a new Data for Progress poll on COVID-19, um, and I think that this says a lot. Which position do you support? Automatically increase spending whenever there is an ongoing deepening recession, or don't automatically increase spending when there's a recession. 65% support automatically increasing spending whenever there's a deepening recession. Only 35% are against that. So, just so everybody understands, this fact alone flies directly in the face of conservative economics. Because conservative economics, they're supposed to, at least in theory, prioritize debt and deficits above other concerns like jobs. So, and the idea is, oh, if, you, if the government starts spending money willy-nilly when we get into um, a recession or a depression... Well, the government can't afford that. We don't have the means to be able to do that. And it'll actually exacerbate the problem in the long run because what you do is you reinflate the bubble. And it's like fake spending. It's not real spending. And in a lot of conservative circles, like libertarian economists will tell you, oh, the recession isn't the problem. The recession is the cure. The recession is the cure because there's a lot of malinvestment in the economy and we got to let air out of the bubble. The bubble's got to burst. That's what has to happen. This is what a lot of conservative economists will tell you. Um, 
But what you see here is, at least according to the people, and the economists will say, I don't care what the people think. Okay, fair enough. But 65% of people do say, no, 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 if we're in a recession or a depression, you want to increase, automatically they're saying, increase spending. Now, even though I just went through that whole spiel about how, you know, libertarian economists will tell you, or Austrian economists will tell you, don't deficit spend like that. What's interesting is that when people get in power, everybody's either a Keynesian or a believer in what's called modern monetary theory. And that's the idea that, well, listen, we have our own sovereign currency. And so, yes, we have the ability to pick up spending whenever necessary to look after the economy. If you control your own currency, if you have a sovereign currency, of course you could deficit spend when times get rough. And of course it's going to work. So, you know, that's the approach when people are actually in power. This is the left-wing position, but then also you see with Republicans, when they're in power and things go south, what do they do? We saw what they did. They sat back. They were totally cool with the Fed pumping a trillion dollars of liquidity into the marketplace every day. Every day they were doing that. They did the giant multi-trillion dollar bailout bills. Now, the difference is, you know, the current Republican Party and Democratic Party, where do they like to put the spending first and foremost? They like to do it directly to corporations. Like a $5 trillion bailout of corporations crumbs to the people, trillions of dollars to the corporations and to the wealthy. And that's why, you know, we have this term that I say, Bernie says it all the time as well, this idea of corporate socialism. That our government's fine with socialism, but they only want socialism for the rich. And then as uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, rugged individualism and capitalism for the poor and, and the middle class even, the working class. Um, so, but I find that fascinating. 65% of the public says, hey, when, we're, when times get rough, damn right the government better be the spender of last resort to make sure the economy doesn't get worse. Because if they do nothing, history shows, oh, yeah, you exacerbate the problem, you exacerbate the recession, you exacerbate the depression, and everybody's screwed. So the spending is necessary. There's just a debate as to how you do the spending, where you do the spending. Obviously, I would contend the way that we're doing the spending now, you know, propping up the stock market, giving money to corporations and the wealthy. No, no, I don't do that. I believe more in socialism for the people, not socialism for the wealthy. Um, So I would do more of a bailout of the people. And that's where I think the money should be focused. But bottom line is the people are saying, oh, definitely spend when when the going gets tough. Now, this is from last month, but I think it's totally relevant. Nationally, a majority of the public see one-time payments of $2,000 as insufficient. 66% prefers recurring payments of $2,000 until a year after the president declares an end to the federal state of emergency. A majority of Republicans, 52%, also agrees with this view. Now, there was another morning console poll that found that 67% of the country wants more stimulus. So we're in the same ballpark with everything here. 65, 66, 67%. To be specific with UBI, 66%. Say, yeah, give me $2,000 every month until the crisis is over, and actually until a year after the crisis is over. I need $2,000 a month. This is what we're talking about. That would be a true bailout of the people. That's what that would be. And what we're seeing is overwhelming support in the country, again, 66%. But we're also seeing 52% of Republicans are like, yeah, who are we kidding? We got a crisis going on right now. Let's take care of that. So, I mean, this really is something else because this, this flies directly in the face of the narrative that we're seeing now in Republican propaganda circles. You turn on Fox Business Network, you turn on Fox News Network, 
And I mean, they'll tell you this is a, you know, a crazy uh, left-wing idea. It's a Pelosi idea. It's a, it's a communist idea. Like I've seen Stuart Barney. We covered the segments of him bashing universal basic income. When the going gets really tough and the economy really is imploding, look at the reaction of the people. Even 52% of Republicans would tell Stuart Varney, hey, man, piss off. I got bills I got to pay. I lost my job through no fault of my own. We have a pandemic going on right now. We have unemployment that's reaching the same level of the Great Depression. And you want to do a segment with buzzwords where you play your little cutesy partisan game where you pretend like a UBI is a bad idea. No, it's a wonderful idea. It's a wonderful idea. And it's exactly why... Andrew Yang's campaign for president, even though he ran as a Democrat, he was one of the campaigns that had the most crossover where Republicans or former Republicans said, I'm going to vote for that guy. I'm going to vote for that guy. Because it turns out UBI is not just an idea that the left likes. It's an idea that the right likes as well. Now, there are differences in, you know, exactly how those UBIs are crafted and implemented. Some on the right would say, I wanted to replace social programs. So there is a difference there between a right-wing UBI and a left-wing UBI, but bottom line is, it is popular, full stop. That's what all the numbers show. That's what all the evidence shows. It's definitely what we need right now. And if I were, you know, one of the Democrats in the House, if I was Nancy Pelosi, even though I know Nancy Pelosi doesn't really believe in it, have a vote on a clean UBI bill, pass it through the House, and then when the Republicans killed in the Senate and Trump wants to kill it, you go on a giant propaganda tour and say, but they're blocking the solution. We passed the solution. We're in favor of the solution, us House Democrats. Now, of course, I don't even know why I'm giving her this advice because we all know what would happen. Let's say the Democrats get a supermajority and they get the presidency. It's not like Nancy Pelosi would pass a UBI, so it would be just a marketing proposal. But yeah, I mean, they should pass a UBI. If you got $5 trillion for corporations and the wealthy, don't tell me that we can't afford $2,000 per month for the rest of the crisis for regular people. Of course we can. And of course we should. And that's one of the few things that really is a solution during this terrible time. It's basically social security for everybody, which is a great idea. And clearly the people are behind it. Okay. Let me take a break. When we come back, still got plenty of stuff to get to. Don't go anywhere, y'all. We will be right back.
Alright, people. I am back. I am back. And, um... We... Are... Going to... Talk about, um... A heartbreaking COVID story. Which is, uh... Probably a story that's all too common around the country right now. Just how much some people are struggling. And um, I really think it's heartbreaking. I don't usually do these kinds of stories where it's like, let's zoom in on what's happening in, in individual somebody's individual life. I like to keep it more macro picture here, not micro picture. But um, I guess this one... This one strikes me as all too indicative of what's common now across the country. So uh, I think it, there's value in sharing it for that reason. Um, let me just chug some more of my big seltzer, and then we'll jump right into it. Even right before a heartbreaking story, there's always some time to sell out to big seltzer. Okay. I am 100% going to burp during this segment, and it is going to be super inappropriate. Super duper inappropriate. Okay. So here's a heartbreaking COVID story, which highlights our, you know, pretty stark decline in this country at the moment. I think this is something that's happening probably all across the country, and we just don't hear too much about it. But um, this was some decent journalism. So Ryan McCarthy says, this story of a man in his 50s visiting a food bank for the first time makes you question whether our government is capable of even the most basic functions right now. So this is from Washington Post, who I don't normally give credit to, but... For this one, they'll get credit. Um, So the highlighted portion says the following. My wife and I have been hoping to get unemployment, but the website shuts down and there's no way to get through on the phone. Sometimes you call the number and they tell you the average wait time is like six or seven hours. Then, after you've been pressing the phone to your ear all day, You might finally get through to talk to a robot who transfers you back to a real person who tells you to print some paperwork off the website that isn't working, and that's usually about the time the call accidentally disconnects. We've been waiting to get food stamps. We've been waiting for another stimulus. Yesterday, I waited almost two hours for my free medicines at the VA. I'm telling myself the system's overwhelmed, and this is the time to be patient, but I can't make any more excuses to my bank account. It's hold for this, wait for that. We had a little savings, but now that's gone. And then you see he says, I tried to sell off some Yankee memorabilia, um, so on and so forth. Okay, I think that tweet, I think that what Ryan says here is absolutely correct. When you read just that little portion you walk away going, oh, my God, I don't know if our government is capable of even the most basic functions at the moment. 
if I if I had told you that story without telling you the country it took place in, and then I asked you to guess the country, I think a decent number of people would not guess the United States of America. I think you might guess some developing country. I think you might guess some third world country. Six or seven hour wait time automatically disconnects. You know, tell you to print out something from the website, but the website's not working. This is a nightmare. People are colossally struggling. And as we've said a zillion times, and we'll say a zillion more, that first serious bailout bill, corona bailout, it effectively was $5 trillion that went to corporations and the Treasury Secretary, Goldman Sachs lackey Steve Mnuchin, got to determine, with no oversight, where that money goes. So instantly when there was a crisis, as Dylan Radigan said on Jimmy Dore's show, and I highly suggest that everybody checks out Dylan Radigan's segments with Jimmy Dore because they're very informative because this guy is obviously a financial expert in a way that Jimmy and I are not necessarily financial experts. Um, but he laid it out very clearly. He said, did you notice what happened initially when there was a crisis, who were the first in line to get bailed out? It was the stock market, the Fed Trump pumping a trillion dollars a day in liquidity into the market. It was the stock market, and then it was the corporations. The last people to get anything were regular people, were regular Americans. And what did they get? $1,200, a one-time payment of $1,200. And so I don't think people truly understand the pain that's happening out there right now. And I don't think it will become manifest for maybe another year or two. But at some point, it'll be clear, because I think we're about to enter an economic period that perhaps is worse than the Great Depression. Perhaps is worse. Because as of right now, there's a halt on evictions because of the pandemic, but Can you imagine the number of evictions that will take place when they're allowed again? Evictions and foreclosures. Can you imagine? I certainly can't because people can't pay the bills. They just can't pay the bills right now. Can't do it. Don't have the money. Don't have the savings. Don't have the ability. Aren't getting the help from Congress. They're screwed. They're totally screwed. And by the way, Washington, D.C. has... No idea. No idea. And if they did know, which they don't, but if they did know, they wouldn't care anyway. Because they are not representing you. They get paid by the corporations. They get paid by the wealthy, which is why they were first in line to get bailed out. And then when you read stories of regular people, it's stuff like this. It's stuff like this. And nobody can make the claim, oh my God, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, because it's not like, We're hearing stories of people who have a history, a history of laziness or unemployment or being irresponsible or five-time former felons or whatever. No, we're not hearing stories like that. We're hearing stories of people who always played by the rules now being totally obliterated by circumstances outside of their control. And D.C. sitting on its hands. Not doing anything. No UBI, no rent freeze, no mortgage freeze, no universal health care. 
no nationalization of industries to pay 80% or more of wages, no furlough instead of firing like they're doing in European countries, none of that. You're screwed. Oh, and if you need help, whatever, go use the already existing infrastructure like the unemployment um, system that you have in your state. Oh, would you look at that? It's backlogged. And you got to be on hold for six or seven hours. And then when you finally get through, they tell you to print the form. And then you go to print the form and the website doesn't work. So you're not getting any help at all, ever. This is what's happening in this country right now. <laughs> gilded age, new gilded age, and we're in it. Okay, next. Okay, Congressman Tim Ryan. A little grandstanding, virtue signaling, little prick. And you'll know why I'm saying that in a second. Congressman Tim Ryan tried to go viral uh, by screaming at Republicans on the floor of the House. Let's watch and then I'll tell you everything about this that makes no sense when we get back. Ryan. Gentleman from Ohio is recognized for one minute. I've got to tell you, this is absolutely unbelievable. Just a few years ago, the stock market's at 25000 Corporate profits are the highest they've been in decades. The rich keep getting richer. And our friends on the other side said, what do we do now? Let's do a tax cut where 83% of it goes to the top 1% of the wealthiest people. Fast forward a few months. Global pandemic. 36 million people unemployed. 40% of families who have a worker that makes $40,000 a year or less lose their job last month. 4 million people didn't pay their rent, and the Republican Party said, we don't have any money to help you. Are you kidding me? Where do you guys live? Food lines around the blocks at our food banks in the United States of America. One in five kids are going hungry. Your party can't even get food to them. This isn't a wish list. If it's a wish list, it's for the working class people. How about the Teamsters that are going to get a pension when this bill passes? Gentlemen's time expired. If we don't their pension gets cut in half. Gentlemen's time expired. This is ridiculous. Gentlewoman from New York, reserve. Gentlemen from Oklahoma is recognized. Gentlemen. Make no mistake about it. The whole point of that was Tim Ryan wanted to go viral. He wanted to have something to show off, to brag to people about, to see, I'm fighting for you. Look, look what I did. I was loud. I made loud noises on the House floor. Now, I'm not going to lie to you guys. If I had seen this, I was naive enough where if you showed me this video, maybe, what is it? It's 2020 now. If you showed me that video in like 2014 and he did this in 2014, I probably would have been like, damn, Tim Ryan's awesome. Look at what he just did there. Wow, Papa. I was a little sucker, okay? But now I know because I've been following this stuff closely enough and longly enough. Longly? Longly. That's an NBA basketball player. I've been following this stuff long enough um, to know that this is pro wrestling. Will you just watch right there? This is pro wrestling. And he's playing the role of the baby face. And he's pointing out the heels who are the Republicans. And he said it. He's like, Republicans say, we don't even have any money to help you. They don't want to help you in the middle of this crisis. What he's not telling you is that Nancy Pelosi doesn't want to help you in the middle of this crisis because she won't even allow a clean vote on his bill. His bill is the 
the UBI bill, him and Ro Khanna teamed up $2,000 a month for people for the duration of this crisis. Now, that's something I believe in and I agree with. But he's screaming at the Republicans. No, first you've got to scream at Pelosi. She won't even allow a vote on that in the House. We'll get to the Republicans in the Senate when Mitch McConnell slaps it down and doesn't allow a vote on it or they vote it down or whatever the hell is going to happen when it gets to the Senate. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. But first and foremost... Your own party leader is not allowing a vote on that bill. Why are you not yelling at her? Ah, because she's on your team. So when she doesn't want to help the American people, eh, we'll make excuses for you. I won't direct my ire at you. That would be impolite. That would be out of line. That would violate our partisan rules here. Now, here's why, and you could say, Kyle, you're being super cynical with this one, but I'm telling you it because I think it's true. You want to know why this frustrates me? I bet you he's grandstanding, he's virtue signaling about this bill, the $2,000 a month thing, and acting like he wants to help people and the Republicans are blocking it and whatnot. I bet if the Democrats had a Democratic president, a Democratic Senate, and a Democratic House, Tim Ryan wouldn't have even proposed this bill. Because then it's like, okay, what's your excuse? Imagine they had a supermajority like they did in the early days of Obama. Would he have proposed this bill? No, because then he can't grandstand about it because he can't do the pro wrestling move, which is, I am going to blame the heel for blocking my attempt to help the American people. Bad Republicans, bad Republicans. But if it was all Democratic, I don't even think he would have proposed this bill. I don't even think he would have put his name on the bill. Because he doesn't actually want this bill passed. He's just grandstanding and virtue signaling. I swear to you he doesn't want this bill passed. And what's my evidence of that? Guys, we just had a presidential race where Tim Ryan was one of the candidates. Tim Ryan very famously had a moment with Bernie Sanders where he was trolling Bernie. And he said something along the lines of, something to the effect of, Bernie, why are you yelling? Bernie, why are you screaming? You, you know, you can lower your voice a little bit. He said something like that because, Bernie, I think the issue was Medicare for all, but it could have been any of a number of issues that Bernie was screaming about helping the American people, and this is what we got to do, and Bernie, of course, means it. And Tim Ryan's like, hey, man, lower your voice, dog. Now, was Tim Ryan running on Andrew Yang's platform of UBI? No. Now he's calling for UBI when Pelosi won't even allow a vote on it, and he's pointing at the Republicans and saying, ah, you're the problem. Well, Pelosi's the problem for not allowing the vote. She's the problem for not allowing the vote. Why are you not yelling at her? Because you actually don't even want this thing passed. You just want a virtue signal. You just want the credit. Dude, you ran an entire presidential campaign on a right-wing platform, and you concern-trolled the person who's calling for these solutions. You concern-trolled the person who actually wants to help the American people, and you mocked them. And you said ideas like Medicare for All and UBI are too far left. That's what you said. That's what you believe. I covered the interviews where you said stuff like that where you were calling for a middle path. Now all of a sudden you pretend. Me, bro? I just want to help the American people. That's what I want to do, bro. Republicans blocking me, bro. It's all fake. This is all pro wrestling. He doesn't even want his own bill to pass. He doesn't even want it. If he really wanted his bill to pass, what would he do? He would be yelling at Pelosi. Allow a vote on it. Let's have a, a vote on a clean UBI bill. $2,000 a month. To everybody for the duration of the crisis. But let's have a vote on it right now. Pelosi's the reason you're not having a vote on it. Why are you not calling her out? Because you don't really want this passed. And we know you don't want to pass because your political history shows the opposite. 
you said you told Jank Uger that if you were president and Medicare for all got to your desk, you would veto it. That's what he told Jank Uger. And now I'm supposed to believe you're a crusader for the people? No. You're a professional wrestler. Pretending to yell at the Republicans, oh, you're so bad and you're doing such bad things and you don't want to help the people. Neither do you, Tim. You're a joke and you're a con man and you're a fraud. And this is one of those instances where what Malcolm X said really, you know, is sticking out in my head here. I don't, I'm not, I'm going to paraphrase it. I don't know the actual quote off the top of my head, but it's something along the lines of Republicans are a wolf. And you know they're wolves. Like, they're upfront about it. The Democrats, they're a wolf in sheep's clothing. Because Tim Ryan's lying to your face like he supports UBI. He doesn't support UBI. If this vote actually would have, if we actually were going to have a vote on this bill, and it, it had a chance of passing, not only would he not have put his name on the bill, he would have voted against it. He would have voted against it. Rokana's a little bit of a different story. I think he actually now wants a UBI. But Tim Ryan, I don't think he wants it at all. I think if there was a prayer of this passing, not only would his name not be on the bill, he would vote against it. Because that's what his record shows. His record shows he's an abysmal failure. So this is a joke. This is a joke. This is pro wrestling. This is virtue signaling. This is grandstanding. He doesn't really believe in it. He doesn't. The same guy who was running a right-wing campaign, is now acting like he's a flaming lefty. I wish, dude, I wish you were a flaming lefty. But if you were serious about getting this passed, first and foremost, you'd have a vote on it in the House, which would mean you would direct your ire at Pelosi. But you're refusing to do that because you don't really want it passed. All right, now I'm going to give you the new COVID bill, which just passed. It's not going anywhere, but I'll give you the update on it. So there was a new COVID bill um, brought about by Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats, and um, I'm going to give you some information on it. Now, we covered a story in the last show um, where we played a clip from Rising on the Hill with Crystal Ball, and Crystal you know, laid out all of the you know, things that are in this new COVID bailout bill. So I'm not going to go through all of those things here and now with you, okay? Because uh, we already covered that and, and spoke about it in detail. But what I will talk about is something that I didn't know was in there until after the fact, okay? We'll talk about that. And then we'll also talk about what happened with the voting because this is infuriating, okay? So um, from Business Insider, they say the following, House Democrats are scaling back their efforts to provide student debt relief, Politico first reported on Thursday. An amendment to their latest coronavirus bill would limit relief to people who were in dire financial straits before March 13th, the day President Donald Trump declared a national emergency. The initial provision to forgive up to $10,000 in student loans was projected to cost $250 billion to $300 billion, a larger price tag than Democrats. Democrats are like, I don't know about helping people with student loans, the cost. The cost is serious. Well, hold on now. You guys just passed a $5 trillion bailout of corporations and the wealthy. That's one of the earlier coronavirus bailout bills. You just did that. Now, when it comes to student loan debt relief, you're like, I don't know. It's expensive. You've got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me. Now, the other fact about this is, and you guys know, we spoke about it at the time, Trump actually temporarily stopped student loan payments. 
Now, I don't know exactly how that's going to work. Is it going to work where when the first payment, when it comes time and the crisis is over and it's time to make your first payment, do you have to pay all the back payments? Do you have to pay like, hey, you missed five payments. Now you got to give me six come the first time you have to pay. Is that going to happen? Or do they put it on at the end? Do they add it on to the end of the loan, which would make a hell of a lot more sense? Um, I don't know exactly how they're planning on doing it, but Trump basically temporarily said no more student loan payments. I remember because we covered that story. Well, now the Democrats originally wanted to give people more relief, and now they're backing off of that and giving less relief, and I just gave you the terms of it right there. Now, the bill was bad. The bill had some aspects of it that were good. It was hazard pay, but it was woefully insufficient. It's good to have hazard pay. It's not good that it's woefully insufficient in terms of how much money is uh, geared towards hazard pay. Um, the bill does not have UBI, but most importantly, the bill does not have what Pramila Jayapal was calling for, which is basically a European-style approach, which is let's have the government pay the wages, basically temporarily nationalize wages from these businesses so that people get furloughed instead of fired. It's a real smart way to save the economy, to basically put everything on hold and have the government step in and be the, basically the, the employer of last resort, if you will. So the government, it's like temporarily nationalizing a bunch of businesses. That's what it is. That didn't make it in, and UBI didn't make it in, and universal health care didn't make it in, so it wasn't a good bill. It was a terrible bill. Now, it appeared like for a minute there, oh, my God, finally, the left is going to stand up. The left is going to do a rebellion. So what happened? A vote comes up on whether or not to have a vote on the bill. See, this is a congressional nonsense that like, we got we to walk through here. But on the vote to determine whether or not to have a vote on the bill, Jayapal, Pocan, Mark Pocan, AOC, um, Garcia, Khanna, Omar, Presley, Porter, and Tlaib, all nine of them said, no, I'm voting against this. And so they got a round of positive press where lefty circles, people in lefty circles were like, oh, thank God. Oh, thank God, the left finally stood up even a little bit. Now, you only got nine of you. You should have been able to muster at least like 30 of you. The fact that you guys can't get 30 to be on the same page in the Congressional Progressive Caucus, I mean, that really shows that, like, you're not organized, and it's kind of pathetic. You need to be organized. You need to get on the same page. You've got you to gotta work together as a block because that's the only way you're going to win with stuff. You've got to act in a similar way to how, you know, the so-called Freedom Caucus acted, the Tea Party Caucus. Um, so it's sad that you only got nine, but okay, whatever, we'll take it. You're standing up a little bit. Thank God, thank God, thank God. Now, so they failed. They, they were just short of blocking a vote on the bill. Then we get a vote on the bill. You ready for this? You know who voted against it? Only one of them. And just so everybody knows, you can give credit where credit is due, is Pramila Jayapal. She could not get over the fact that we didn't do, um, we didn't have the government pay wages for people uh, during the crisis. And she was like, this is crazy. You know, this is like what the solution is. We know because every other developed country is doing it. You temporarily furlough instead of fire people. You pay the wages. We're good. That's what we got to do. This is what government is for. She could not get over the fact that that wasn't in the bill. She voted against it. Every other one of them I just named, Pocan, AOC, Garcia, Khanna, Omar, Presley, Porter, Tlaib, they all voted for it. So they voted no on having the vote on the bill. Then when it came time to vote on the bill, they voted for the bill. 
pathetic, man. What do you want me to tell you? You're all massive cucks. I mean, that is cucktastic right there. You're bathing in cuck juice. <laughs> That's what that is. That sounds really dirty, but you get the point. What are you doing? What are you doing? I can't. I can't. It... <laughs> At this late date, this was your rebellion? <laughs> We've had like 47 COVID bills already up to this point. Every single one of them has been objectively terrible. You voted for all of them. And then your idea of a rebellion on like the fifth or sixth bill is like, maybe I would like to say that maybe we shouldn't vote on this bill and we should need more time to think about it and give us more time to buckle on this. And then maybe if I tell you I don't want to vote on the bill and I'm undecided and I need more time to pretend to act like I'm going to put better things in the bill even though I'm not, maybe then we can not do this because I want to look like I'm strong. I'm lying, hear me roar. Oh, we failed to block a vote on the bill? Okay, I guess I'll vote for it. <laughs> Come on, bro! <laughs> what, the, what the hell is this? You're all so sad. <laughs> so sad. I'm not even mad because I'm laughing at you. I pity you. You're embarrassing. This is embarrassing. Do you not understand that? This is embarrassing. I mean, it, I, they, they vote for anything. They vote for anything that Pelosi puts in front of them and tells them to vote for. That's really the conclusion from this. We've had like five COVID bills. Every single one of them has been abysmal. 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 You voted for all of them, including the largest upward transfer of wealth in history. The complete, you know, solidification of corporate socialism. You all voted for that. And then this was your rebellion. This was. You'd vote for anything. If whatever Pelosi says, you will end up voting for. There's no spine between any of you, uh, among any of you, except Pramila. I give her credit because she voted against it. She stayed true and voted against it. Everybody else, I don't. Like, I want to like you. And I want to come out here and argue for you. And say, yeah, this is how we fight back. This is how we win. We have strong lefties. But if you buckle every single time. What do you want me to do? I can't defend you. You look ridiculous, because you are. I literally don't even know how to end this segment, other than to say this is so goddamn disappointing and so pathetic, yet so expected. I, I mean, so expected. I could have guessed that this would happen. Because every, the best predictor of future action is past action. And in the past, every single time, what did they do? They buckled to Pelosi. So this time, they buckled to Pelosi after doing a fake rebellion. <laughs> oh, the saddest thing I've ever seen. Okay, next. Let's go to Rush Limbaugh. So Rush Limbaugh is going full speed ahead with COVID-19 conspiracy theorizing. Rush is known for his uh, anti-science views. He thinks that, um, what did he say about the Big Bang? This was probably my favorite Rush Limbaugh clip ever. 
He was like, how do they know that it happened when uh, none of the scientists were there? <laughs> Beyond parody. Um, he doesn't believe in evolution. I can go on and on. Every single anti-science view you could possibly have, he has. Well, now he's, you know, dipping his toe in the water of uh, COVID-19 conspiracy theorizing. Let's watch. You know what this is starting to sound like? This whole coronavirus story is starting to remind me of climate change. Rising sea bubbles in the next 10 years could wipe out New York and Miami. And that doesn't happen. Rising sea levels in the next 20 years could wipe out New York, Miami, and maybe even Philadelphia. The predictions keep changing. They get more dire. They get more dangerous, more extreme. And the reason for it is they're not able to scare people sufficiently. And, of course, testing has its own quirks attached to it. The more you test, guess what? The more cases you have. So they are then allowed to report skyrocketing cases they never attribute it to the fact that more people are being tested because the scare tactic is to make you think the virus is out of control. The virus isn't out of control anymore now that it ever has been. We're just able to find out more people who have it. Okay, we have, what is it now, probably over 85,000 or 90,000 deaths from the virus? Is that, like, is that nothing to scoff at? I don't understand. If you have over 85,000 or 90,000 deaths from the virus, I think that's serious. And I'm pretty sure that if it was Barack Obama still in office, Rush Limbaugh would have the exact opposite opinions on this. He'd be out there like, I can't, this virus is destroying the country and the response has been horrendous. And we have over 85,000 or 90,000 deaths. Obama's destroying the country, yay! I have no doubt that that's what his commentary would be. Because this is what you get from a rank partisan hack. And I love his, you know, enlightened moment there on testing. He's like, did you know the more you test, the more cases you have? Yeah, the more you test, the more we learn about people that have the virus. And that's a good thing, because we want to know. You know, the, the point he's trying to make is like, well, if you don't test and you don't know that people have the virus, then everything's better. Everything's okay. Because people aren't going to be freaked out because we don't even know that people have the virus. He's literally making an argument for ignorance. Like, what if we just didn't test and didn't know that all these people have the virus? What about that? Well, then we'd feel better because the number on paper would be less, even though in objective reality people still have the virus. And that gets to the main point, actually, which is, like, Okay, yes, we're doing more tests than the rest of the world as a raw number, but per capita, we're 40th in testing. But, like, even the actual number of cases that exist in the country, and probably the actual number of deaths as well, is way higher than the official number. Why do I say that? Why do I know that? Because every other pandemic throughout human history, you can go back and look at the official cases reported, the official number of deaths, and... Experts now know, oh, no, it was way more than what were the official number. 
because we simply don't have the infrastructure or the ability to really test everybody who needs a test and to really know everybody who's passed away from COVID. So it's like it's a lot worse than what it says on paper. And Rush Limbaugh's argument is like, well, if we just don't do the testing, then on paper it's not that bad, and then we're good because nobody even knows it's bad. The tortured logic, the mental gymnastics, just to defend Donald Trump and the response from this government, and again, right in line with his standard anti-science views, because you heard him say at the beginning there, that COVID-19, this is now reminding me of climate change, and what does Rush Limbaugh think about climate change? He thinks it's a hoax. He's only said it about 9,000 times on his show, and we've only covered it about 6,000 of those 9,000 times. So climate change is a hoax. Is COVID-19 a hoax? Like, I want to know exactly what the claim is from him. Because even I think there's no way he's stupid enough to think that, like, the virus isn't real. But if he, if he has the same feelings on this as climate change, then that's what he's saying. He thinks climate change is a total hoax. It's not real at all. Do you also think COVID-19 is not real at all? Or do you think it's just, oh, it's overstated how bad it is. It's not as bad as they're making it out to be. I don't know which claim he's making, but God, I hope he's saying that, oh, it's just exaggerated as opposed to what he really thinks of climate change, which is it's a hoax. It's not real. It's fake. You've been duped. Does he think COVID-19 is a hoax? Listen, I... I don't know how he's acting in his personal life, but he better not act like that in his personal life because Rush Limbaugh has advanced lung cancer right now. Which, by the way, he sounds like he's fine, all considering, like, good for him. Um, you know, I guess he's doing his treatment and he sounds okay. Like, he doesn't sound like he had advanced lung cancer. I know because my dad had died of lung cancer, and I heard what somebody sounds like when they're that advanced, and you sound terrible, and he did, doesn't sound like that, which is good for him. But, like, dude... If you're acting like COVID-19 is a hoax and you're out and about and you're going everywhere and you're in restaurants and you're surrounded by people, he's like first in line for the kind of person who could pass away if he gets it. So, come on, man. Like, I don't get, not everything, they view everything through a partisan lens and then they also view everything through a conspiracy lens. Not everything is partisan. Not everything is a conspiracy. For the love of God, like, just try to be at least minimally objective, but he can't take off his blinders, and he can't stop looking through the specific filter he looks through. Okay. Now let's talk about Justin Amash, which is a story I've been waiting to get to. Really looking forward to this one. Really looking forward to this bitch. Really looking forward to this bitch. All right, here we go. So we have a shocking development, or at least shocking to me, uh, about the 2020 presidential election. Justin Amash said the following. Thanks for your support as I've been exploring a run for president as the potential nominee of the Libertarian Party. I spent nearly three weeks assessing the race, appearing in media, talking to delegates and donors, watching the Libertarian Party's convention plan unfold and gathering feedback from family, friends, and other advisors. After much reflection, I've concluded that circumstances don't lend themselves to my success as a candidate for president this year, and therefore, I will not be a candidate. Now, that thread goes on, and he, you know, gives more about why he's dropping out and what he thinks about 
the future of the Libertarian Party, which is obviously how he identifies now as part of the Libertarian Party. Um, but here's what actually happened. And we know because, you know, I actually covered pretty closely everything that happened with Justin Amash from when he entered the race. And honestly, he was bullied out of the race. <laughs> he was bullied out of the race by people in mainstream media and, you know, other like establishment politicians who kept telling him and kept insisting, oh, so you're going to get Trump reelected. That's what you're going to do. You're going to get Trump reelected. So really you're helping Trump. You're like pretending to be against Trump, but you're actually for Trump. And this is all just a big ruse to steal votes from Biden, which will help Donald Trump, which will get him reelected. And so you will go down in history as the guy who got Trump reelected. We hate you. We think you're pathetic. We think you're absurd. We think you're a joke. And for the rest of history, we will treat you as a new Ralph Nader, because you know how Ralph Nader was blamed for George W. Bush winning, even though it's not his fault. That's how Ralph Nader was treated in, you know, polite society. Amash would be treated that same way, regardless of the facts, by the way, regardless of the facts. Um, He would be treated as a spoiler that helped Trump. Even if Trump loses, they would still say, oh, Biden would have won by a bigger margin if Justin Amash wasn't in there. And he simply wasn't prepared to get the endless stream of hate from people who are part of the club. And remember, he's a congressman, so he's part of the club. He was in the club. And he made some, like, you know, nominal anti-Trump noises, and he, like, supported impeachment or whatever, and he left the Republican Party. So he was getting praise and adoration from other members of the club and the media and Democratic politicians. And he got used to that, and he liked it. And then when he announced his run, and it was all negative feedback, Basically, he punked out. He was like, all right, what am I going to do? I'm not going to, I don't want to be hated the rest of my life, so I'm going to back out. Now, that's interesting, because a guy like Justin Amash is good on, like, civil liberties issues. And, you know, if you talk to guys like Glenn Greenwald, he'll tell you that this is one of the few, like, principled voices in um, Congress. But, I mean, I guess what I would say to Justin Amash is, well, if you're really principled, then you could, you should be able to tune out all the noise of the people wrongly blaming you. And um, there shouldn't be an issue here. Like, you should be able to run, and whatever happens, happens. But he punked out. He's like, he doesn't want to do it. Now, I don't know if he ever thought he really had a chance, but he, he almost admitted in a previous segment that we covered on the show that this is more about getting the Libertarian Party more viable for the future. If he gets 5% of the vote, he gets what's called matching funds, which helps the party moving forward, makes them a more viable option. And I think that he knew that was his goal, running as a libertarian, would be to make the libertarian party more viable. I don't think he would have hit that, that level. I don't think he would have gotten to that 5% number. Um, and maybe that's one of the reasons as well why he dropped out. But I honestly think it's just because he didn't want the endless stream of hate. But I have to say, man, even though I'm not a Justin Amash supporter, I wouldn't have voted for him. I, I so despised every single person who made the BS argument that he was going to hand the election over to Trump. Because they have no idea. They have no idea what they're talking about. They're honestly just making it up. Because ideologically, Amash is actually much more on the right than he is on the left. And it's very possible that people who were leaning Trump, who were libertarian-ish in their own ideology, would have voted for Amash. So we don't know. We don't know if all of his votes would have been pulled from Trump, all of his votes would have been pulled from Biden, it would have been 50-50, it would have been, you know, whatever. Uh, 75, 25, whatever it may be. No, we we just don't know. Um, But people pretended like they knew. And see, this is the thing. They're already making the excuses for Biden. Up front, they're already making the excuse that if Biden loses, 
It's, of course, not because he's Joe Biden and he can't freaking talk and he's got a terrible record. No. It's got to be other people's fault, so let's already get our, our excuses lined up in a row. And, this, you know, same thing we saw with Hillary. All blame, blame uh, James Comey. Blame the FBI. Blame sexism. Uh, blame Russia. The list goes on and on. So, anyway, blame the Bernie bros. They were, he was already being used as a scapegoat, and I don't think he was comfortable being a scapegoat, but... I wish he stayed in. I wish he ran. Even though we have a two-party system, and I don't think we're going to break this two-party system, I think it's going to stay as is, and we're kind of stuck with it. But I still like the option and the idea of having other options because it's for people like me. Now, again, I wouldn't vote for Justin Amash. I might vote for the Green Party candidate. We'll see. But, like, that's what that exists for, for people like me who really, at this point, there's not a chance in hell I vote for Trump or Biden. They just don't represent me. I don't agree with them. So I like having that option to go vote. And it's kind of amazing that you have a professional class and a media class and, and a group of elites who will do everything in their power to say, I don't believe in democracy, I don't believe in freedom, and I want to take away more options from you. And so I'll just shame this guy out of the race and out of existence. And I really think that that's what happened with Justin Amash. And I think it's pathetic. And I think everybody who used that kind of an argument against Amash, they're morons. They're elitist morons, and um, they actively are trying to give you a lesser of two evils election, which is just beyond pathetic. This next clip from Fox Business is amazing because it shows a level of disconnect from the American public that's honestly breathtaking. So here they are talking about the economy. You have Art Laffer who's an economist who's been proven wrong about basically everything. Here's what they have to say. I want to get to the headline from Morgan Stanley. They are now predicting a V-shaped economic recovery. In other words, we're going right back up again. Art Lapper's with us. Are you on board with a V-shaped recovery? In other words, a vigorous recovery starting real soon. Let me just tell you, I'm not into the medical stuff. I read it and love it, and I'm not into the political stuff of what's happening with Slim, but economics is my gig, and that is very true. Morgan Stanley's results are exactly what I believe. I think this president and this administration has done a great job on the economy, and anyone wants that economy to last. This president is probably the best president for the economy I've ever seen. It's just amazing, and I think Morgan Stanley is showing that when they do the V-shape. But the stock market is even a better forecaster, Stuart. Mm-hmm. And what you're seeing the stock market do right now is bounce back. Remember it went as low as 18000 yep. and then it bounced back? The stock market is the single best predictor of, of the future. It, it, the stock market tells us what will be, not what has been. Right. And it's an unbiased, efficient forecaster. And the stock market's telling us this is going to be a shallow dip and it's going to be a quick recovery. And I couldn't be more excited than I am. I think investors are, too. Totally delusional. Look at the conflation of stock market and the economy. They do it so casually. And at the end, you heard uh, Stuart Barney bring up what? Who? Investors. So this shows you their mindset. Their mindset is like, oh, we're going to have a, quote, V-shaped economic recovery. So they're saying, everything's going to be great. Don't even, I'm not even worried about it, bro. Why would I even be worried about it? Everything looks great. Now, everything is great 
for the wealthy. Everything is great for the stock market. Everything is great for the corporations. Why? Because Donald Trump, his administration, but also the Federal Reserve, the bank, showed, oh, we'll do whatever it takes to prop you guys up. We have fully implemented corporate socialism. What the government has shown the wealthy and the corporations is that, oh, no, 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 don't worry. If we need to pump a trillion dollars of liquidity per day into the stock market to shore it up, we'll do it. So in other words, the message is, no, you guys don't get it. You literally can't lose. If you're a corporation with, with, that has power already, if you're wealthy, you're an investor, you cannot lose. If you're in the top 1%, you cannot lose. We will not let you lose. Okay? When times are good, privatize the profits. When times are bad, socialize the losses and just get propped up, either by the central bank, the Fed, or by taxpayers. Can't lose. No matter what, you don't lose. No matter what. And the government has shown the rich enough so that they know, oh, we're good no matter what happens. And so that's why you see they're so optimistic and everything. We have, we literally have a great, like Great Depression level unemployment, and the country's coming apart. There's an economic implosion happening, and they're you know ecstatic. They're very optimistic because in their mind, and here's the main point, guys. In their mind, you don't count. Working people don't count. Regular people don't count. The only people that count are the investors, the billionaires the wealthy, the 1%, the corporations, the little elitist club, they're the only ones that count. And so this is why you see this conflation of the stock market with the broader economy. They think, oh, the fact that the stock market is good means the economy is good, but there's never been a more clear decoupling of how your average American is doing versus how the stock market is doing than in today's day and age. Because all of that bailout money, all of the quantitative easing, it went to the stock market, it went to the rich, and it's not the people got measly one-time one $1,200 payment, and that's it. That's all they got. That's it. So all these people are getting absolutely obliterated, and they don't care. They don't realize, and they think they don't count. I only care about the stock market and the wealthy, and they're doing great. So V-shaped economic recovery, yes. And then he also said Trump is doing great with the, with the economy, which, again, he's giving away. He said he's the, the best president ever for the economy. He's giving away his own ideology there, which is the, the rich are the only ones that matter. He, he's showing the world that that's what he believes. And by the way, Art Laffer also, this is a giant contradiction to what he's based his career on and what he's based his life on, because he's a right-wing economist. Usually these guys yell and scream and bitch and moan about deficits and the debt. Well, all the spending, which is going to the wealthy, it's adding to the debt and the deficit massively. But notice he didn't say anything about the debt and the deficit. Why? Because for him it was really more about that was an intellectual cover for letting his friends run out the back door with all the money. And now he's kind of letting that be known. That, yeah, oh, now I know I always concern troll about the debt and the deficit when a Democrat is in office. Now it's a Republican and he's adding to it. I'm not going to say anything because really what he's really concerned about is exactly what's happening, which is give all the money to the wealthy and whatever happens, happens. And the rest of the working people don't count. Look at how out of touch. Imagine being a regular American in the middle of the country, even a Republican, watching that. Is that a reflection of how you're doing and how all your friends are doing and how everybody's feeling? No. It's amazing that they broadcast this stuff. Because it's like, 
the propaganda has gone so overboard now that even your average Republican is going to watch that and be like, what the hell are these guys talking about? I'm struggling here. (laughs) I'm stunned. Even I'm stunned at just how disconnected they are. They're so optimistic when, like, we're in the worst place we've been since the Great Depression. And they're optimistic. And they're optimistic because they know that their buddies, the wealthy, can never lose. Okay. All right, let's make fun of CNN hosts. Let's make fun of CNN hosts. CNN host Brian Stelter decided to do a segment, like many other segments he's done in the past, where he whines about Trump supporters being mean to the media and also Trump himself being mean to the media. Let's watch. Taking a look at the president's rhetoric. The American press is stronger than any demagogue, but President Trump's attacks present real challenges. For as long as I've been alive, for as long as you've been alive, no leader of the free world has publicly spoken about the press the way Trump does. It is poison. Calling news outlets the enemy of the people is a verbal form of poison. And maybe it's just meant to distract us, but it still must be taken seriously. So, if you've heard that before, it's because every word I said, everything I just said, is three years old. I said it in front of this camera, in front of a million viewers, in February 2017. That was the very first time Trump called reporters the enemy. Now, the root of the word news is new, but sometimes the biggest news of all is what hasn't changed, what is still happening. And when it comes to the president's war on truth, it's true. We have to continue to pay attention to it, even though it hasn't fundamentally changed. But some things have changed in three years. Let's look at what has changed. The president's words are still poison, but now the words are more potent. His fans are more loyal. He is intensifying a hate movement against the media, trying to ensure that people don't believe what reporters reveal about his leadership. His attacks are more frequent, they are more ferocious, and they are more specific, and they are happening in the midst of a deadly pandemic. Trump has shown a pattern over the past three years. Now we can say pretty confidently it's a pattern of treating women and minority journalists differently. Take his recent exchange with CBS News correspondent Wei Zhejiang. We're going to get back to that in a moment. But there are some other examples this week that we have to call attention to. For example, President Trump tweeting to the FCC, which is an agency that is a part of its executive branch, and saying that NBC's Chuck Todd must be fired because Todd's show ran a misleading video clip. Trump also has been pushing a vile conspiracy theory about MSNBC's Joe Scarborough, implying that Scarborough is a murderer. That's insane. And look, how the president acts at the White House, what he does on Twitter, how he treats reporters in the briefing room, has ripple effects far from Washington. Look what happened this week on Long Island. This was in Comac at a right-wing pro-Trump protest uh, that was uh, set up to uh, speak out against the lockdowns uh, that are happening in Long Island and elsewhere. So this is video taken by News 12 reporter Kevin Vesey. Uh, He was at the rally to cover the opinions of the pro-Trump protesters, to give them attention, and in return there were insults screamed at his face. He was heckled. Uh, At one point it seemed like he was almost chased. Just take a look for yourself. 
I think you need to back away from No, me. I got hydroxychloroquine. I'm fine. I'm just standing here. This guy will not get away from me. There we go. You're disgusting. You're disgusting. You are the enemy of the people. And it went on and on and on. As reporters denounced this stuff when the video went viral, the president's Twitter feed lit up with support for the protesters. Here's the thing. With these tweets, he's not just celebrating this behavior. He's not just saying they have a First Amendment right to protest, which they do. The president's encouraging confrontations with reporters. He's saying it's okay. He's saying it's patriotic. It's Trumpian to confront local TV reporters, to yell epithets while they are trying to work to act menacing in front of kids. That's where we are. This is the kind of stuff you see in autocracies, not democracies. Just ask yourself what you would say if you saw it in another country. And here's what makes this cycle so vicious, what makes this, this back and forth so vicious. The president lies, reporters pointed out, he says the media hates him, then his supporters back him up, they excuse the lie, they defend their guy, they get even more alienated from the media, they become convinced that reporters are the enemy, and this helps Trump, so he helps keeps raising the volume, and then there's even more to criticize, and on loud, and the shouting's even louder and louder on social media, and harassment and threats against reporters become constant, and attacks against Trump, and on and on it goes. It is a vicious, vicious cycle. But basic decency is not and should never be partisan. It is not a Republican or Democratic idea. So let's look to Idaho for hope. All right, we can cut it off there. Okay, so I'm going to break down a lot of that. But to that last point, he says basic decency is not a partisan thing. Okay, but Brian, the point of your critics is that you guys aren't decent. I get what you're saying, that a lot of the, you know, the – pro-Trump critics of the media, they're being indecent, and they go too far, and they cross a line. Sometimes that's true, sure. But the point of critics of the media, both right-wing critics and left-wing critics, is that, hey, maybe it's you guys who are being indecent. Like, for example, when you get the Iraq war wrong and you do endless propaganda for an illegal and offensive war against a country that didn't attack us, and then minimum 200,000 civilians are killed, innocent civilians, and then torture was ordered to cover it up, and then you got that wrong too, because you called torture enhanced interrogation, because the government wanted you to, and you did their bidding, maybe you guys were indecent. Now, not Brian Stelter specifically, so I don't even know if he was in the media back then, but the media generally speaking, they got the Iraq war wrong, they got the Afghanistan war wrong, they got the Great Recession wrong and invited on people from Wall Street to tell everybody, hey, everything's fine, keep investing with us, keep giving us your money, right before the economy fell off a damn cliff. They allowed these fraudsters on the air to scam people, and then they take no responsibility for it at all. They acted like there wasn't going to be a recession coming. They acted like everything was fine. People got screwed over. Every time the media says anything about Medicare for All, they get it wrong. That's indecent. It's indecent to do propaganda for for-profit mafia health insurance companies as people die because they don't have health care. That's indecent. That's indecent, Brian. It's indecent to get Russiagate dead wrong and push Russiagate endlessly during Trump's first term. 
as if it was going to be some sort of got you. You also got impeachment wrong, and he gave people false hope that there was a, a snowball's chance in hell that Trump could have been impeached. And it was so much propaganda, and it was so pervasive, that even people I know on the left who are not dumb people fell for it. I'm pretty sure the point, not just from right-wing critics of the media, but left-wing critics of the media too, is that you guys are indecent. It's not like that's the thing. There's so there's this reflexive defensiveness on the part of the media in the Trump era. And they self-aggrandize so much. They think they're so special. They think they're snowflakes. They think they never got anything wrong ever. And it's like, Brian, you and all of your buddies suck at this job. You're so bad at it that I'm an idiot YouTuber with a microphone and I run circles around you. Not because I'm so good, but because you guys are so damn bad. And you got elitist groupthink going on and it's pathetic. Okay, now, let's go through more of his points. Well, actually, one of the things I have to say is, he's doing this segment whining about how Trump is mean to, in, mean to the media and Trump's people are mean to the media. He's doing this segment at a time when up to 70 million Americans are not going to have health insurance. At a time where we have a health care crisis, the likes of which this country has never seen before. And he's whining about the president and his people being mean to the media. You know, maybe, maybe focus more on the things that are more important, like we don't have a health care infrastructure in this country. Maybe that's a more important story. Maybe it's a more important story that unemployment is surpassing 20%. The actual unemployment rate is over 20%. It's about 23% and rising and rising. Maybe focus on that. So just the misplaced priorities up front really piss me off. Um, and the other thing that annoys me is, so he's doing this whole segment on freedom of the press, yes, freedom of the press, yes. Not a single word about Chelsea Manning, about Edward Snowden, about Julian Assange. If you actually are concerned with freedom of the press, you cannot have that conversation without bringing up people who are truly being oppressed by the government. Chelsea Manning, Edward Snowden, and Julian Assange. You have nothing to say about them. In fact, you're against them. So this is why I can't take your crocodile tears seriously. When we have an actual issue that involves the legality of freedom of the press, you're nowhere to be found. In fact, you're actively on the wrong side of it. You whine when the president does mean tweets about you. You whine when some of Trump's supporters are rude. It's unbelievable. Now, don't get me wrong. A lot of those people, their criticisms of the press are dumb. Like, their criticisms are, you're not sufficiently sycophantic to Trump. Okay, well, you're a moron then. That's not a good criticism. But who cares? Who cares? Oh, they gave you the finger. Oh, are you okay? You're going to be okay? It's called being a public person. You know, it's par for the course. Hatred, if you're a public figure, if you're a journalist, it's par for the course. Some people will like you. Some people will hate you. It is what it is. You know, I'm going to whine about it. It's so bad. It's so wrong. <laughs> and then he says, well, you see this in autocracies and not democracies. Um, and it's like, okay, dude, but the people who are truly being destroyed are Chelsea Manning, Edward Snowden, and Julian Assange. When it comes to you, when it comes to elite media, Trump tweets negative stuff about you, but you're not being put in jail now, are you? Nobody's actually muzzling you. 
which gets to the main point, which is people are criticizing you guys in the mainstream media. They're not censoring you. There's a big difference. You're not being censored. You're being criticized. Now, some of the criticism is stupid, granted, but some of it's actually intelligent and correct. Take it. Take it. Instead of whining. When we're in the middle of a depression, you do a segment whining because your fifis are hurt because the president and his supporters are mean. Get over it, man. Get over it. This is criticism. This isn't censorship. You're whining about how oppressed you are from your CNN show. That's not what would happen in a dictatorship. You want to know people who are truly being oppressed? Go talk to Edward Snowden. Go talk to Julian Assange. Go talk to Chelsea Manning. These are people who are truly oppressed. So I just can't stand how self-important and, and self-aggrandizing these people are. It, you're, you look ridiculous, and you have no idea how you look. They, don't, they can't take any criticism. As thin-skinned as Trump is, and he's very thin-skinned, the media is just as thin-skinned as he is. Mainstream media whines and cries and bitches and moans the second anybody says a negative word about them or criticizes them or is mean to them. Get over yourselves. You're really, really bad at your job, and there's a reason why. It's not just people on the right who hate you. People on the left hate you as well. And we've covered the numbers on the show. I think it's about 13% of the public that has a great deal of trust in the media and something like 36% that has any trust at all in the media. So Donald Trump is more popular than the press. You would think that would bring about some self-reflection. Now I want to look in the mirror and see why is it that we're universally despised. But no, they don't do it. So instead they whine. As we have over 20% unemployment and a healthcare crisis in this country, people dying from a pandemic, he found time to do a segment whining because people are mean to him. Forgive me if I don't feel bad. All right, final story of the day. CNN's resident bird brain, Chris Saliza, 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 however you say it, I don't care. Um, he gave stalest, dumbest, most predictable, and stupid take of all time on the issue of presidents and the act of being presidential. Let's watch. quarantine changed me? I'm cutting down dead branches from my trees and using them for my own firewood. Yeah, really. Ha 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 80s hair metal band Cinderella. Man, those guys rock. Just have hair like that. Now those lyrics have hit home of late in American politics. It's Two ex-presidents have emerged to help console and cheer up the country amid the coronavirus pandemic, even as the current resident of the White House lashes out more and more at his supposed enemies. Simply put, George W. Bush and Barack Obama have shown a level of grace and class that has been missing in Donald Trump. And in so doing, they've reminded us all what a president should say and do in moments of real crisis. First came Bush with a video message for the country in early May. We are not partisan combatants. We are human beings, equally vulnerable and equally wonderful. 
in the sight of God. We rise or fall together, and we are determined to rise. And I have no doubt, none at all, that this spirit of service and sacrifice is alive and well in America. We rise or fall together. This spirit of service and sacrifice is alive and well in America. Those are inspiring words. They're conciliatory words. They're kind words. And how did Donald Trump react to Bush's call for unity? Well, just about how you'd expect. He tweeted that Bush, quote, was nowhere to be found in speaking up against the greatest hoax in American history, end quote. Now, Trump was referring to his impeachment by the House, which was brought about by Trump asking the Ukrainian president to look into unverified allegations of wrongdoing by Joe Biden and his son, Hunter. <sighs> Classy. Then came the news that Barack Obama and his wife, Michelle, would give a series of commencement addresses to high school and college graduates impacted by the coronavirus pandemic. Quote, I've always loved joining commencements. The culmination of years of hard work and sacrifice, Obama wrote on Twitter. He added, even if we can't get together in person this year, Michelle and I are excited to celebrate the nationwide class of 2020 and recognize this milestone with you and your loved ones, end quote. Later in that same week, Obama placed phone calls to Chicago public school teachers to thank them for their service. It was Teacher Appreciation Week. Sidebar, Michelle Obama's documentary, Becoming, also premiered in early May on Netflix, offering its own message of both vulnerability and hope. And Michelle Obama may well be more popular than either former president at this moment. End of sidebar. Now this is, of course, not the first time that we have seen either George W. Bush or Barack Obama show the sort of empathy and leadership that we have come to expect from presidents, especially in moments when we are, as a country, scared or angry. Bush's single best moment as president came when he traveled to New York City days after the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks, grabbed a bullhorn, climbed atop a pile of wreckage, and said this. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And the people... Honestly, that still gives me chills watching that clip uh, years later. Uh, Obama repeatedly rose to the occasion when circumstances demanded it. His eulogy for nine African Americans murdered by a white supremacist at the Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina in 2015 was not just one of the best speeches of his presidency, but one of the best presidential speeches. Quote, as a nation, out of this terrible tragedy, God has visited grace upon us, for he has allowed us to see where we have been blind, Obama said. He has given us a chance where we've been lost to find our best selves. We may not have earned it, this grace, with our rancor and complacency and short-sightedness and fear of each other, but we got it all the same, end quote. And then, in that speech, Obama did this. Look, neither Bush nor Obama were perfect presidents. Both men said and did things they probably wish, in hindsight, they hadn't said and done. But what both men understood during their presidencies and now was this. Being the leader of the free world carries with it huge responsibility. You have to put aside your own interests and try your best to do what's best for the country. You need to cajole and console 
Empathy matters, and so does reassurance. In our darkest moments as a nation, both men did their best to remind us of our shared humanity and our common nationhood. Now, compare that to how Donald Trump has acted amid the challenge posed by the coronavirus pandemic. He's repeatedly said things that simply aren't true about the availability of testing in the country. He's blamed everyone from China to Obama to the governor of Michigan for the effects of the virus in the United States. He's claimed personal credit for saving millions of lives. And on and on and on. Trump has long claimed he is modern-day presidential. Know what? I prefer him to be just regular old presidential. And that is the point. We make new point episodes every Tuesday. Living parody. Living parody. The quintessential encapsulation and stereotype of an elite media moron. You do not have to rehabilitate other presidents in order to argue that Trump is bad. There's enough bad stuff that Donald Trump has done to argue on the merits and on the policies and on the record that Donald Trump is bad. But honestly, Chris and all of the mainstream media clowns are too ignorant and too lazy to know the details and the specifics as to how and why Trump is bad. Like, for example, the 432% increase in drone strikes. Totally unacceptable. The continuation of our wars, totally unacceptable. The ripping up of the Iran deal, totally unacceptable. The escalating tensions with Cuba, totally unacceptable. The 2017 GOP tax cut, where 83% of the benefits went to the top 1%, terrible. Destroying the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, terrible. Getting rid of your internet privacy, a bill that had a 6% approval rating and Donald Trump signed it, terrible. I can go on and on. See, I could do this because I actually know the specifics of it. So I can argue Trump is bad based on on the specific policy proposals and his record. What I don't have to do is rehabilitate war criminals. Okay, now let's dive into it. Here's my response to the giant fluff job that Chris Saliza did with George W. Bush and Barack Obama. The war in Iraq, illegal offensive war against a country that didn't attack us. The war in Afghanistan, been going on for 19 years. There's still no end in sight. There's still no definition of victory. And the military industrial complex has gotten colossally wealthy off of it. As we've killed hundreds of thousands of civilians in Iraq and Afghanistan together. Hundreds of thousands. Torture. George W. Bush ordered torture. Illegal under U.S. law and international law. It's a war crime, just like his illegal and offensive wars are war crimes. Deregulation of the marketplace, which led to the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession. That was under Bill Clinton and George W. Bush, who further exacerbated it. Tax cuts for the wealthy. That happened under George W. Bush as well. Then you had bailing out Wall Street. That happened under George W. Bush and under Barack Obama. Not prosecuting torturers. That's what Obama did. Not prosecuting the financial scammers on Wall Street. That's what Obama did. Having his cabinet picked by those financial criminals from big banks. That's what Obama did. Continued the endless wars. Killed civilians 90% with his drone strikes. Suspended habeas corpus. Pushed TPP 
and other outsourcing deals endlessly, those deals, of course, hurt the working class. Did a right-wing health care reform, which left tens of millions of people uninsured. It was just a giant giveaway to the health insurance companies. That's what Obama did. And he was giving him credit for singing at the funeral of gun victims. Obama couldn't get any gun reform through. Nothing. Nothing. How can you bring up an issue, namely gun violence, where you go on to give Obama credit, and on that very issue, he also failed? How do you do that, Chris? How are you that dumb? But this gets to the main point, guys, and you know it to be true. And deep down, Chris himself knows it to be true. These people have the political analysis of a dog. I mean that. And let me explain what that means. Dogs sense body language from you. So it's all about how you act, what you're portraying, and the dog will feed off of your energy. Okay? If, you, if a dog's barking at you and being aggressive and you kind of start running away, they're going to chase you. They go, yeah, I got him. Victim, going after him. That's what will happen. But if you show strong body language back and let them know who's boss, all of a sudden they'll back down. Okay? Chris Eliza, all he cares about in politics is politeness, civility, decorum, and fake leadership. Let me act very presidential. Let me act like I'm a very serious person saying serious things. And then, yes, I'll be defended by the elite idiots in the media. Yes. So all you have to do is sound professional. And he's sold hook, line, and sinker. So as long as you are acting like a president would act in a movie or on a TV show, that's it. That's all crystallism needs. Oh, my God. He talks in full sentences, and he sounds so polite, and he seems smart. That's all he needs. So in other words, guys like Chris Eliza, honestly, he just wants somebody to BS him. And this goes for the rest of corporate media, too. They just want somebody, Democrat or Republican, who BSs them and makes them think everything's okay and makes them think they're in control and they have leadership qualities. That's what he wants. Because... He literally, he brings up the 9-11 bullhorn speech as a positive for George W. Bush and doesn't tell you that Bush's policy reaction to 9-11 was exactly what I laid out, which was illegal and offensive wars against countries that didn't attack us based on lies, based on lies and torture and wasting trillions of dollars, seven trillion when all said and done in Iraq alone. But he doesn't care about any of the details, any of the specifics, any of the policies, any of the real-world harm. To him, it's just, I don't know, he sounds polite, he sounds civil, he sounds like he has decorum, he seems like a leader, so I'm soothed. Well then, listen, I know I'm not going to get through to crystallism when it comes to substantive arguments like the one I'm making, okay? But what I will say is this to Chris. Hey man, even if your main thing is politeness, civility, and decorum. Even if, that, if, if that's your standard, my standard is I want a president to be polite, civil, and show decorum. Well, it's really impolite to kill civilians. It's really impolite to torture. It's really not civil to torture and kill civilians. 
So even by your own standard, it's pretty impolite. It's pretty uncivil to give all the money to the rich, deregulate the banks, and crash the economy, and screw over millions of people, and have millions of people foreclosed on. That's pretty impolite. That's pretty uncivil. That's really not leadership now, is it? Not leadership for the country, certainly not. Maybe for the wealthy donors, not for the country. So even according to your own standard, they're not wildly successful presidents. But this is what these people do, man. This is what elite media does, and it has duped a lot of the population. You'll see nostalgia is strong. People like Bush. People like Obama now, and the numbers are overwhelming. But that's totally disconnected from what they actually did, what their actual record is. To Chris, it's just about, oh, my God, Trump is raw. Trump is unfiltered. Trump is crazy. Trump is loud. I just want somebody who's quiet and polite and civil and has decorum and pretends to be a good leader. So, in other words, he wants somebody to BS him. Chris, that says so much about you, and it really says nothing about Obama and Bush. Because Obama and Bush, they are what they did. Trump is what he does. That's what you are in this world. You are what you do. And all of them are war criminals, to say the least. There are a lot more negative things as well, which I just went through. But you never acknowledge it because you want to feel like the president is like, Daddy, you want to feel like the president, oh, make me feel good, Daddy. Tell me everything's going to be okay. He's a child. He's like a dog. This is what he wants in a leader. It's pathetic. You shouldn't have a job on CNN. This is pathetic propaganda for the establishment wing of both parties. This is propaganda for establishment Democrats and establishment Republicans. That's his basic argument summed up. Just give me anybody from the establishment wing of either party and I'll be okay. So in other words, the same people that were so bad, so dreadful, that they brought us Trump. They got us Trump. He wants to go back to the thing that got us Trump. And perhaps we'll get a worse Trump. That's how broken this guy's mind is and how pathetic he is. Okay. All right, we're done, guys. I love you, baby. Hope everybody's staying safe out there. We'll talk to you soon. Everybody have a good rest of your day. Peace.